fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is the platelet equivalent of hemolytic RH disease of the newborn, and it develops as a result of maternal alloimmunization to fetal platelet antigens with transplacental transfer of platelet-specific antibody and the subsequent platelet destruction. Large prospective studies put the condition at anywhere in 1 in 3,000 live-born to 1 in 1,000 live-born infants. Unlike red cell alloimmunization, fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia can affect a first pregnancy. A large proportion of the clinically evident cases of fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia are discovered in the first live-born infant. In this podcast, we're going to review the diagnosis and management of fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. Medicine moves fast, so let's stay up to date with Clinical Pearls. In a typical case of unanticipated fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia, the woman is healthy and has a normal platelet count, and her pregnancy, labor, and delivery are indistinguishable from those of other low-risk OB patients. The neonate, however, is born with evidence of profound thrombocytopenia or develops symptomatic thrombocytopenia within hours after birth. An affected infant often manifests generalized petechiae or ecchymosis, hemorrhage into the viscera, and bleeding after circumcision or venipuncture also is common. The most serious complication of fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is intracranial hemorrhage, which occurs in up to 15% of infants with platelet counts that are under 50 times 10 to the 9th fetal intracranial hemorrhage due to fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia can occur in utero, and one-half, that's 52%, of these cases of fetal intracranial hemorrhage can actually be detected by antepartum ultrasound before the onset of labor. Ultrasonographic findings can include intraventricular, periventricular, or parenchymal hemorrhage, and these should alert the clinician to do an evaluation for this possibility. These observations are in contrast to neonatal intracranial hemorrhage due to ITP, which is exceedingly rare and usually occurs during the neonatal period. So that's the first clinical pearl. Remember that neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia can happen in utero and can be severe, whereas, thankfully, neonatal intracranial hemorrhage is much more rare with ITP. All right, so what causes this horrific condition anyway? Well, there's several polymorphic diallelic antigen systems that reside on the platelet membrane glycoproteins and that are responsible for this fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. Many of these antigen systems have several names because they were identified concurrently in different parts of the world. A uniform nomenclature has been adopted that describes these antigens, and they're called human platelet antigens, or HPAs. And they have numbers identifying specific antigen groups and alleles that are designated as little a or little b. There are more than 15 officially recognized platelet-specific antigens at this time. Most of the severe cases have occurred as a result of sensitization against HPA-1 little a. All right, so here's kind of the devastating fact. Fetal thrombocytopenia due to HPA-1 little a sensitization tends to be severe and can occur as early as 20 weeks of gestation. 
Traditional thought had been that without antenatal treatment, the recurrence risk for this condition would be high in cases involving HPA-1A if the subsequent sibling carried the pertinent antigen. So, the recurrence risk is related to paternal zygosity. Expert opinion has been that the disease tends to be equally severe or progressively severe in subsequent pregnancies. However, newer evidence does not support that theory. So that's good news. A prospective cohort of just 45 subsequent pregnancies in HPA1A immunized women demonstrated that younger siblings of fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia affected children had unchanged or higher neonatal platelet counts without antenatal treatment in two-thirds of ensuing pregnancies. So again, that is quite reassuring. It was suggested that maternal anti-HPA1A antibody levels during pregnancy may help identify whether subsequent pregnancies may experience recurrent disease. However, and this is a clinical pearl, there's no correlation right now with the maternal antibody level and severity of neonatal subsequent disease. All right, so let's say that again. It is a good idea to check maternal anti-HPA1A levels to see if she has the antibody against the specific antigen. However, at this time, there's no correlation and we cannot risk predict the severity of illness based on that antibody level. All right, we come back. Let's take a look at the evaluation for suspected fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia and what tests are useful for making the diagnosis. This condition should be suspected in cases of otherwise unexplained fetal or neonatal thrombocytopenia, hemorrhage, or ultrasonographic findings consistent with intracranial bleeding. The laboratory diagnosis includes determination of HPA type and zygosity of both parents and the confirmation of maternal antiplatelet antibodies with specificity for paternal platelets and the incompatible antigen. Platelet typing may be determined serologically or by genotyping because the genes and polymorphisms responsible for most of these cases have been identified. This platelet typing is helpful when the father is heterozygous for the pertinent antigen because fetal platelet antigen typing can be performed by either the traditional method using amniocytes or more recently in cell-free DNA from the maternal blood. Theoretically, this method also should be applicable to chorionic villi sampling, although caution can be expressed in using this method because of the potential for increased sensitization in cases in which the fetus is affected. The laboratory evaluation for fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia is actually quite complex. Results can be ambiguous and an antigen incompatibility cannot always be identified. So because of that, it's important to look for the appropriate consultation and make sure to work with a regional lab that's familiar with this condition. All right, I know what you're thinking. Look, if we think that this child is affected, why don't we just check the kid's platelet counts? Well, it's not that easy. There are no adequate indirect methods to determine the fetal platelet count. And here's a clinical pearl. Maternal antiplatelet antibody titers correlate poorly with the severity of disease. 
Currently, the only accurate means of estimating the fetal platelet count is to measure it directly by percutaneous umbilical cord sampling, or PUBS. But serious complications, including the need for emergent preterm cesarean delivery, have been reported in up to 11% of fetal blood sampling procedures in the setting of fetal neonatal autoimmune thrombocytopenia. All right, podcast family, we're going to bring it home and we're going to cover our last section next, which is the appropriate obstetrical management of this condition. The primary goal in the obstetric management of pregnancies complicated by fetal neonatal autoimmune thrombocytopenia is to prevent intracranial hemorrhage and its associated complications. Remember, in contrast to ITP, the higher frequency of intracranial hemorrhages associated with this condition justifies more aggressive interventions that just aren't justified with ITP in the mother. Also, strategies intended to avoid intracranial hemorrhage must be initiated antenatally because of the risk of in utero intracranial hemorrhage. The optimal management of fetuses at risk for this condition, in other words, those testing positive for the incompatible antigen or those whose fathers are homozygous for the antigen, actually remain uncertain. The management decisions for these fetuses should be individualized, and before initiating any plan of treatment for a woman, consultation should be sought with an OB and pediatric specialist familiar with this condition. This also includes potentially bringing in hematology-oncology with an expertise in obstetrical or neonatal issues. Approaches based on consensus from experts in the field have recommended a stratified management. Women with pregnancies affected by this condition are subdivided into groups based on the presence or absence of an intracranial hemorrhage in a previously affected pregnancy and a gestational age of manifestation, in other words, delivery before or after 28 weeks. The intensity of maternal surveillance and therapy is then justified accordingly. Several attempts have been used in an attempt to increase the fetal platelet count and to avoid intracranial hemorrhage, including maternal treatment with IVIG, with or without corticosteroids, and fetal platelet transfusions. But here's the clinical pearl. None of these therapies has been effective in all cases. Direct fetal administration of IVIG does not reliably improve the fetal platelet count, although it has been reported in a few cases. Platelet transfusions with maternal platelets are consistently effective in increasing the fetal platelet count. However, the short half-life of these transfused platelets requires weekly procedures and may worsen the alloimmunization. Traditionally, fetal blood sampling had been included in the management of this condition to determine the need for and the effectiveness of therapy. Based on the results of prospective trials of treatment interventions in this condition, early cordocentesis as early as 20 weeks was determined unnecessary. A systematic review of 26 studies suggests that a non-invasive management approach involving weekly administration of IVIG with or without the addition of corticosteroids in pregnancies complicated by this condition is equally effective when compared with intrauterine platelet transfusions in preventing fetal and neonatal bleeding due to thrombocytopenia. 
consensus guidelines currently propose early empiric initiation of this treatment with IVIG with later addition of oral prednisone based on the risk of recurrence of fetal intracranial hemorrhage. Treatment should be based on patient history and the presence of maternal antiplatelet antibodies in the corresponding platelet antigens on fetal cells. Now here's a clinical pearl. It's recommended that fetal blood sampling be reserved until 32 weeks of gestation in women planning for a vaginal delivery. In those women, umbilical cord blood sampling would be undertaken to document that the fetal platelet response to therapy has been adequate to allow a vaginal birth to occur safely, but late enough in pregnancy to deliver a viable newborn if any complication results from that procedure. All right, now here's the last clinical pearl as relates to mode of delivery. Labor and vaginal delivery are not contraindicated for fetuses with platelet counts greater than 50, but a cesarean delivery is recommended for those with fetal platelet counts below this level. Remember, we're talking about 50 times 10 to the 9th. Delivery should be accomplished in a setting equipped to care adequately for a neonate with the possibility of severe thrombocytopenia or, of course, intracranial hemorrhage. All right, podcast family, we have covered a diagnosis that's actually a mouthful. We have covered fetal, neonatal, alloimmune thrombocytopenia. This condition is much worse than ITP. And the data for this podcast comes from the ACOG Practice Bulletin, which is number 207 from March of 2019. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.